Hello, this is Matt Hale talking to you from Art Monthly's talk show. And um, this is a regular show produced coming out of the magazine, the current issue, which is June 2014, number 377 of Art Monthly. Basically, the programme is based on selected texts from that, that issue. And in this programme, I'm joined by Dave Beach and Colin Perry. Now, Dave Beach has written a feature and Colin's written a review. Dave is both an artist in the collective free, but also a senior lecturer, BA Fine Art, at the University of the Arts London Chelsea School of Art. I think I've got that right. It's all a bit confusing these days. Universities seem to incorporate more than one art school, as I used to know them, having been to Chelsea. Colin is more than that, in a sense. I mean, you are both... Not more, sorry, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have more to say. You are a writer and critic based in London, but you also do do some teaching at Central St Martins, which is also part of the University of the Arts London. Um, but you don't teach in the same buildings and you wouldn't bump into each other in that sense. But you obviously know each other from being out and about in the art world, I'm sure. The reason I'm mentioning this educational aspect a bit more than I might do normally is because Dave's feature is about, well, we've called it in the magazine, Teaching the Unteachable with a sub... Header, what should art schools teach, asks Dave Beach, which rhymes nicely, doesn't it, Dave? Um, but I don't know whether that was what you actually called it when you sent it in No, it wasn't. for us. So d- I always give people the opportunity to sort of, you know, say what they called it to. Oh, right. Well, I just had... Um, or in your head, anyway. I, it was just called On Teaching Art. Yes, exactly, um, exactly. Which isn't a, which isn't a title for a, for a page. No. That's just a, just a title in your... On your iPad, yeah, for you to remember what it is that you're writing about. Yes, of course. Um, but but basically, it, I'm not going to try and sum it up at all. But you do begin really with a kind of history, in a sense, of um, the art school or art. More basically, art. Really, I mean, and and in particular, you do. I mean, pick very carefully the difference between the word art and arts with an mm, s yeah. uh, maybe that's the place to start for <coughs> you for you to come in what what you know my question would obviously be well what is the difference why did you pick up on that well th- there's one thing that is is uh is remarkable is is that is that there, there are these differences between talking about the arts fine art art and yet uh, when you when you in in conversation amongst academics and artists and and critics and theorists, they're used interchangeably, um, t- even today. And also, we still have some schools. I mean, like I, I work at Chelsea College of Art and Design, which is within the University of the Arts. So we've got one of the singular and one of the plural together as if as if these things are, are completely commensurable and compatible and and we can uh, you mean as if there's no difference well uh, if there is a difference it's not specified and it seems to me that it's as if art is being treated as an art which is an odd thing you mean like a do. specialism in itself well the universe of the arts is a lot of arts because it includes other things like um you know typography and textile design and so web web so design? So the University of the Arts is not the University of Art because there's lots of other things <laughs> that they Can teach. Can I interject here? Because I think what you do really well in this article is you kind of um, describe how these terms have come about historically. And you talk about the arts being 
um, sculpture and painting, etc., as disciplines, and art in the singular as being a um, non-specifically skill-based activity, something that cannot be taught. So you make a distinction between arts that can be taught and art that is a sort of spiritual disposition or something that art artists have. Spiritual. You know, well, this yeah. kind of um, notion that you're sort of, you either got it or you ain't kind of thing. That, 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 was, that was Colin Perry, yeah, by the way. That, that's, that's, not, that's not actually how it's... Uh, okay, I've got that wrong. Uh, uh, well, it's, <laughs> it's part of the story, yeah. but also you've, you've, you've kind of editorialised a little bit there as well. So, the, the, first of all, the, the, the concept of art... Um, First, if we go back to the, the concept of uh, th th that becomes translated as art, in uh, if we go back to, to the ancient Greek, painting, sculpture, um, and the things that we regard as being art were not included in, the, in their version of the arts. So, that, so they they had well, the word that gets translated as art means skill. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of skills. There were liberal skills and there were, and there were me mechanical skills. So liberal skills are skills of the educated, like rhetoric, and, um, and mechanical skills were things like making pots. Um, so their, their concept of, of art was always plural because there was always a particular kind of skill for a particular kind of practice. So, you, you know, learning how to do rhetoric doesn't help you to make pots, and learning to make pots doesn't help you to do rhetoric. So you, each practice has to, have, has to be learnt in a particular kind of hands-on way. In other words, you, you have to learn rhetoric by doing rhetoric, and you have to learn making pots by making pots. So, 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 that, so there's a practical element to the, um, to the development of the ability to do that thing. So initially, the concept of art just means skill. Uh, but skill that, for the ancient Greeks, meant something you can learn. Right? That's what they thought a skill was. It's something that you can learn. Um, and it's not until much later on, in fact, it's not until the Renaissance, really, that painting and what we call sculpture, but they didn't have a word for sculpture, um, becomes one of the higher level of arts. Okay, so they they join the liberal arts by people like Leonardo saying, uh, uh, you, "You have to be a scholar to be a painter. You have to know about science. You have to know about anatomy. You have to know about the world. You have to know about perspective. You have to know about maths in order to uh, paint well." So it's it's very late on really that painting joins the liberal arts and, and is seen as, as something other than a kind of vulgar skill. But even in the Renaissance, they didn't have a concept of art. They still only had a concept of these plural arts, of these various skills for skills attached to specific practices. And what happens when we get this concept of art for the first time, which, in the, which is in the 18th century, is not that it... I mean, obviously, for the romantics in the 18th century, they'll, they'll, they use all kinds of uh, rhetorical devices for establishing art as a, as a special kind of practice. Uh, and some of those might be linked to spiritual and, uh, and other uh, associations. Um, but essentially what, what I would say the distinction between the arts and art is, is that art is an abstract concept whereas the arts are all specific concepts. 
So if we want to, if we want to uh, associate that abstraction with spirituality or, or with uh, someone either being able to do something or not being able to do something, then, that, then it seems to me that's an interpretation of this abstractness of art as opposed to the specificity of painting in a particular way, carving in a particular way, throwing pots in a particular way. So it goes from being a particular thing to being an abstract thing. And the abstract thing is interesting in terms of the concept of skill. As soon as you have a concept of art which is abstract, which, you know, where art isn't painting or isn't sculpture or isn't any of those things in particular, then it's very difficult to think about what the skill might be for producing art because there is no such thing as skill in general. All right, so there's no, there's no skill you can learn which you can then use to make anything at all. You know, so skills are always particular. So once you've got art in general as a concept, not, art, not the arts in particular, then there is no skill you can teach people that will allow them to make it, that thing. It doesn't just mean that the arts, art, to be an artist as in the concept of art, doesn't just mean that you actually have broadened very widely so that you actually just incorporate so many skills that, like philosophy... No. I know I'm getting this wrong. Yeah. No, you're getting it Almost right. on purpose, but it's like yeah. the, the philosophy and everything makes up the artist. But, you see, I'm using artist because I can't quite do what you're thinking. I can't think quite... Because I'm well, going to say artist but again, rather than art. The concept of artist arises exactly the same time as the concept of art. We didn't have a okay, concept well that, of that's artist. that's useful to know. So artist... The word artist wasn't even applied. No. No. So if you, you know, if you think about Vasari's um, lives of the most eminent painters, architects, and so on and so forth. He doesn't say artists. He doesn't say... Well, it does in, it does in, the, in some modern translations of it. Uh. But uh, originally, it didn't, they didn't have a concept for all of these different kinds of practices together. So the concept of artist is, is an 18th century invention, which is really a way of distinguishing those people that make art as opposed to those people with skills that made what we used to call art, and then from the 18th century onwards called crafts. So what is the connection it's then Colin. up to... Um, you bring this back to the, the crisis in, in contemporary art schools, and I don't know, maybe you could sort of describe the, the, the way that is manifest now. I mean, it's, it seems... Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. you know, did you find this, Colin, in, when you do go to art schools and teach? I mean, and, and Dave, obviously you're there too, that, that this is actually your piece is coming out of some, some which I imagine anyway, coming out of some pressure that's going on currently, which is why we're talking about it, because mm. there is this idea which you do talk about, I think, of, of going to skills well, what, one of the things that more wanted, again. One of the reasons why there's so much history in, the, in this article is because what I wanted, one of the things I wanted to say is that the current crisis in our education is just the last in a long line of crises in our education. So the Renaissance established for the first time the Academy of the Arts uh, or the Academy of Painting, Sculpture and so forth. So um, they had to do that because they had a new concept of what they were doing, which involved creativity for the first time. So they, so they had to be taught in a different way. You couldn't be taught in an apprenticeship if, if the fundamental thing that you're doing as a painter or a sculptor is to be creative. So they had to establish new... Um, institutional frameworks for the the passing on and the, and the learning of of how to become this this new kind of thing. So so every time there's been there's been a kind of revolution in culture, there's also been a revolution in, in education. Well, it must affect presumably back because the 
Because you, you, well, you, you just can't you can't have a new concept of art and carry on teaching it. In no, the you can't way. ignore it. Yeah, no, it has, so, to, it has to be dealt with. So, so one of the things I wanted to do was was to get away from the idea that art education has always been skill based, and now we suddenly have this crisis for the first time, which is just not true. There's, there have been these crises every time. There's been a challenge to the old framework. So that was one of the things that I wanted to do. And then the second is is to is to is to think about how teaching art as opposed to teaching the arts has to be different from um, those uh, those classic precedents of teaching crafts. Um, so, I w- so the main thing was to was to really raise a question of if we if we if we understand this distinction between the arts and art, and, and if we see that. Art is only possible, as we understand it, with art galleries and art, mu- and art mu- museums and artists. If we, if we, if we subscribe to, the, to that constellation of ideas, then we can't teach art in the way that, historically, we taught the arts. So how do we, how do we then teach it? Just, just to pick up, I'm, 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 because this is where the real difficulties, if any, arise, I'm not I'm saying I can clarify them myself, yeah. but... but you do need skills at some point, would you say, in order to make art? They, the, the, key, the key distinction here is, first of all, there's, there's, first of all you, you can't teach art by teaching those skills in a way that maybe you could during the Middle Ages, okay? Because you weren't teaching art, you were teaching yeah. how to paint yeah. if you were a painter. So you would learn how to be a painter by painting and learning the skills of painting. You can't do that with art because learning the skills doesn't um, doesn't develop your um, the the capacity you need to be an artist, and that's not be- that's not to say that either you have that capacity before you go to art school or you don't ha- or you'll never have that capacity at all. But that, that the in a sense the cultivation of your of your ability to make judgments and so forth is not necessarily reducible to your 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 technical ability to make something so that that that's 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 Can't, part of it you, you did you want to ask me you don't know well, it well it's a point i'd like to make Colin. But, but um yeah it's it's more about this kind of the the boundaries of what skills mean today In, to be an artist you need to be part of a sort of discursive institution and there are lots of different skills you need to be part of that discursive institution. Um, you need to have read certain things and have certain kind of touchstones and um, be aware of a certain kind of canon and certain the, kind of anti-canon. The distinction that I draw, the, the distinction that I draw as clearly as I can within, within within the article is the distinction between the skills that artists employ and artistic skills. So. This, and none of the skills that you've just mentioned there, we would say, are artistic skills. They're skills that belong within other disciplines as well. So one of the things that's changed with the concept of art as opposed to the arts is that you no longer learn artistic skills in order to become an artist. The skills that you need to be an artist are no longer specific to a particular kind of art. 
Well, they are, though, because you need to be part of that discursive community. But, that, and, but, and but you also single, need to be part of a discursive single, community to be a novelist. You need to be part of a discursive community. Yeah, but they're all different, to, aren't they? They're, each one of those is a very different discursive community. They're different discursive communities, but the, the skills of engaging okay, in discourse. Okay, so you mean yeah. the skills. common. Mm-hmm. They're okay. not artistic yeah. skills. It's not an artistic skill to be good at marketing. It's not an artistic skill to be... You're talking about specificity. These, these, are, skill, these are skills that you need to be an artist, perhaps. But they're, they're not artistic skills. In other words, paint, learning to paint is an artistic skill. The thing is that learning to paint today is not the skill that makes you an artist. I think you need to carry on. Go on. Okay, <laughs> so um, that means that these skills that we're talking about that are common skills, not specific to art, can be taught at art school, but we shouldn't think that by teaching people these skills, that we're therefore training them to be artists. Because it's not those skills that makes them, that makes what they do art. In other words, even though there are a number of famous examples of artists whose practice is, by and large, a practice of marketing, it doesn't mean that now, from now on, marketing is an artistic skill. All right? It's not that... We, you know, in the in the way that say um, um, we invent a new new technology, for instance, you know, like video becomes available as a as a, as, as a mode of production for art in uh, in the nineteen sixties. Now, after that point, you can then introduce those technologies and introduce those skills into the art curriculum, and an artist learn these as much as they might learn to draw or something like that. Now, that, that's what you were talking about before, Matt, which is this, this concept of art as, the, as including a whole array, a whole array of different well, it's, it's skills. It's almost infinite. It's forever. That, that it's it been, it's that, as wide as you want it to be. Yeah, well, it's really. infinite. It's, it's infinite. infinite. Absolutely yeah. infinite, really. Yeah. But what, what I'm talking about is, is, a, is a shift, all right? Not just an accumulation of individual skills, but a shift away from the identity of art as the, uh, the execution of these skills. That's what happens in the, in the 18th century. So um, it opens up for the first time the possibility of incompetence being just as interesting, just as poetic, just as beautiful as competence. So the skills themselves are not the measure of the art. All right? And, the, and, and so... It doesn't mean that artists don't have skills. Obviously, all artists have skills, and all students of art pick up skills. But these are not artistic skills, and they're not skills that are basic to all. Now, one of the things that that happens when... And this is fundamental to what I would say art education needs to be about today. One of the fundamental things that happens is when you go from a skill-based education of the arts to a non-skill-based education of art... Skill appears individual. You know, and this is, this is why Michael Craig Martin says, there are no basic skills for artists. Each artist has their own set of skills, and therefore you can't teach those skills to the whole cohort. Now, the reason that skill appears to be individual in that sense, and it, it's, 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 a, it's a genuine perception, but the reason isn't just that skill becomes relativistic. It's because... And I'm, I'm going to change, change the, the, the phrasing of this to, just to help us to understand it, is what becomes uh, significant within art after um, 
after the 18th century and becomes increasingly significant within modernism is the question of technique. So technique becomes significant, all right? So the decisions you make about your process, about, um, you know, the, the difference for, for the famous one uh, of Jackson Pollock getting rid of his brushes in order to paint with a stick, that is a question of technique which has significance, Right. Would, 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 it's meaningful. Would marketing be included as a technique? That's well, marketing. If you if you're using marketing as an artist and you're doing it in a mm. in a self conscious, critical way, mm. then your decisions about marketing will be significant within your work. Mm. So tec- so technique becomes significant within the work. It, 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 it in the way that um, within modernism, the content is the form. It's not the content. So, you know, the, what we find significant about, um, about a Matisse painting is secondarily the fact that it's of a woman and primarily the fact that it's made out of paper cuts. Do you know what I mean? So the form becomes a thing that's significant. Now, if but, we expand on that, that... That is a certain narrative, though. It is. I mean, there, but, there's, you but, know, Rosalind Krauss writing about the optical unconscious would fundamentally disagree what, with that what, as a narrative. What we would, what we would say, expanding that, yeah. is that it's not, we, sh- we shouldn't just be thinking about the form in terms of the object. We should be thinking about technique as a whole. So technique, your, um, your conduct as an artist, um, and your... That's why I mentioned your, marketing, you see. But, but, also, but also, like, inventing new tools for yourself. You know what I mean? Inventing new ways of doing things, because the ways that you have worked... Uh, or the way that other people have worked, or the way that you were taught, doesn't allow you to do certain things. So technique becomes absolutely essential to the meaning of the work. And it might be that other meanings exist alongside that, but from the 20th century onwards... And in fact, you you can see it in in debates, it it increases. In debates in the 19th century about the kinds of techniques that you use, you know, whether you you choose to to focus on, on... realistic painting or whether the, the, the painting is impressionistic and so forth. You're, the, these are not questions of style, these are questions of technique. <laughs> because, they're, because they're not about the object, they're about the process of producing the work, which is why Merleau-Ponty talked about Cezanne in the way that he did. He doesn't talk about the paintings, he talks about what Cezanne did. Cezanne sitting in front of uh, a landscape and experiencing that landscape through his brush. And that experience is a technical question because there are other ways of painting, with a bigger brush, for instance, which means that the technical questions, therefore, have psychological, cultural well, the te- and political the te- meanings. The technique is chosen for art reasons. And other is reasons. Is that what you mean? That, 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 that we look at art through, its te- through the technique used. Yeah, but what about the, the artist, techni- though? The, the art, okay, so that's the viewer. Yeah. But then the artist, no, and the, and is, the artist is choosing well. the bigger brush, the smaller brush, to throw the painting away. And what technique does Duchamp use? <laughs> Appropriation. That's a technique. That's a technique. Okay. Shopping, if you want. Right. Shopping is a technique. And yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, there's then, many skills now, and sorry, techniques now, which are... But clearly, shopping resonates, doesn't it? So shopping, is, it's not just a technical act. This is what I'm saying, that the, the technique within art is no longer just technical. Technique within art, from the 19th century onwards, resonates. It has meaning. It has meaning. That's what you, it means. That's what, and so, when, when we're talking about art education today, we might shift the emphasis from thinking about skill 
to thinking about technique. In other words, not thinking about the technical accomplishment or, or the technical execution of a, of a work, but of how meaningful decisions about yeah, technique for, for me, that are. only really makes sense if you see it, or it makes a lot more sense to see those activities as being part of like a discursive community. And I come back to that term as, as a way of people reinforcing an idea rather than that. I mean, I see what you mean about this kind of everybody's got their, each artist has got their individual sort of brand, you know, um, Duchamp as the shopper or, or whatever, um, you know, Jack the Dripper and all that kind of stuff. But what they're doing and how they articulate that in relationship to um, writing. If about by, if art by discursive community you, you mean that we talk about these techniques, then that's absolutely fine. But what I don't want to do yeah. is to think our way so far from the actual techniques that we think that they're just ideas or they just represent ideas. The techniques are real things and you discover them in real practice. And students have to discover them in real mm -hmm. practice as well. One of the mistakes that art students make, I think, is by um, burying themselves in the, in the discourse to such an extent that, they, that they, they, they come away with this delusion that once you've decided what your ideas are, then the techniques will follow. Yeah, no, that's really, really important. And it's also, it's quite interesting to reflect on that in terms of practice-based PhDs. Um, there, there's this really strange, you know, how do you validate your practice within a PhD in terms of theory? How does one feed into the other? Um, you might not, you know, doing a PhD in art is something that you do for your own um, intellectual Interest. Well, it doesn't job, maybe. It doesn't necessarily, or it certainly doesn't make you a better artist. Well, I don't think I don't think you can say that for, for certain. I mean, it might. Well, it, yeah, okay, but it's you know, there's no kind of guarantee. You you could no, equally no spend that time um, developing your art within the discursive institution of art and developing your practice in that way. So what 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 I'm what I'm techniques what I'm what I'm driving involved. at then is that if we think about the difference between teaching skill on the one hand and paying very close attention to technique as a meaningful aspect of art, then you're going to teach people differently. You know, and also it 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 means it means that it makes more sense, for instance, to um, not teach students how to make art. But once they have made art, to then interrogate them on the technical decisions that they've made. So it means that teaching becomes, uh, if, if you want to think about it in, in, in terms of a kind of time frame, you don't, you don't, the teaching does, doesn't come up front. You know what I mean? Like when I, when I went to college, when I did my uh, degree in, in, in painting, um, we, were, we were told when we first arrived that the first term... So from September to, to December, we will just do life drawing. So this, this is like trying to get the skills in at the front. So then once you've done so many months life drawing, you're then in a position to be able to start painting. You know? So I think what, what, what we're looking at now, certainly this is what we do at Chelsea, is day one we say, show us your work. And we start with their work. And then from that, we then start to question them about the technical decisions they've made and, there, and other decisions that they've made as well. So, so for instance, if somebody said, oh, put a lump of stone in front of you that they'd carved, you would... 
be talking about why they decided to make a stone carving in the first place, not why the stone carving was beautifully shaped, curved. We can do that as well. No, but I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah as well. But but the, surely the critical thing you, you seem to be saying is is that what you're doing is really saying to them, well, how how did you decide to be a stone carver? Yeah, or, so, or, or, so, ju- or justify that to me why you are one. I think by in starting the, the out by starting century. out with their work rather than starting out with a set of so-called basic skills like life drawing used to be seen as a basic skill for all of the arts. Uh, rather than starting out with a basic skill, you start out with their work. And that means that right from day one, they know that they've made decisions and they will be asked about those decisions. So, it, so at, at no point can you say, well, stone carving is art, so therefore if you do stone carving, that's okay. What, what, we, what we might uh, be looking at instead is saying, why would you choose stone carving instead of designing an app? Yeah. For instance, depending on what it is that they want to, what they're what they're interested. But the in. idea is to get them to understand the importance of that question. Yes, that that because to, to because that you're saying that those questions make art. Well, no, that they need to take responsibility for all of their decisions. That that mm. there isn't a kind of point at which you kind of go back, 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 back through their decisions, and then you say, I can't go further than this because this just is art. Yeah, you're free now. Yeah. So you, you can't you know you can't go all the way back and say, well, painting's art, so just carry on, or or you know. Which is certainly what I would have thought when I was painting on my O level. Yeah. Yeah. Believing that I was making art. Yeah. It is. I mean, I do understand what you're saying in that sense, because I, I became to realise that it clearly wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't, we can't, we can't teach art in that way anymore. Teaching art isn't about um, teaching people the skills of producing artworks. Teaching art is. It doesn't mean that teaching art has now become utterly conceptual and it's just about talk, because the talking is about the decisions that they've made that are embodied in the works that they've produced. So we're still talking about technique, but we wouldn't say to someone, I, certainly I wouldn't say as, as, a, as an art teacher, that, um, that if, this, if the work that they've produced isn't of that, you know, doesn't uh, exhibit the, the highest craft skills, then they need to sort themselves out before we can start calling this art. That's just not uh, a criterion. But, but, the, but the intention, say... Of, of of a of a work, as in, if it was intentionally, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a quick example, but there are, there is definitely some work where it's apparent that it's very casually made, mm. as opposed to being incredibly carefully constructed mm. physically. Mm. It may be very carefully constructed mentally, but it doesn't look like it. But you wouldn't you would not pick up on that as a failing what you would be saying is, well, why do you want to present us a work that appears so casual and, and, but, uh, but and you, speedily made, you know, you, like a bit of paper on the floor or something? But you, you would hope to ask exactly the same question for someone who works in a very meticulous way. Yes. You know, why would you think that working in, in a meticulous yeah. way why is Why would you spend five yeah. years carving this bit I think of stone? Th- th- there's there's, a, there's a, a kind of myth that is still hanging around the art school, uh, which is, uh, you, you will hear once in a while, a painter, a painting student, saying, why does everybody want, to, want me to stop painting? Why do they think that painting um, is no longer a viable thing to do in, in, as art and in the art school? And I don't think that that's actually 
what's uh, the pressure that they're faced with. I think it feels like that. But I think what, what, what's, uh, what, what's coming from the other students, because this doesn't come from the tutors, what comes from the other students is, is, it, is it, they're, they're trying to push these painters to find out why did they stop there? Is it because they have this, they've just accepted and, ad and adopted this, what is now kind of uh, a, a redundant uh, identification of painting with art? Or have they got another reason, a more interesting reason, for continuing to paint after the identification of painting with art has been severed? Has it? Mm. I don't think you can identify, in other words, uh, Peter Osborne says this, I think, that uh, when well, he said it a couple of weeks ago in a, in a talk he gave. Um, anything now can be art, with the possible exception of painting. And the reason he's saying that is because, um, or as I understand it anyway, is that once anything can be art, then painting is no more art than anything else. So then you, so then you have to start thinking, well, isn't, isn't painting then a kind of... Uh, isn't painting one of the few things remaining that is ignorant of the fact that anything can be art? But that, that why painting is being picked up there as an example? Well, maybe is it because it was one of the original skills, one of the yeah, identified the as an art. Yeah, have I got the art, yeah. the arts bit right yeah. there? But, 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 whereas, that say, if I decide I'm not going to use any of these pre-skills that would have been called art. I escape that problem. I mean, it actually almost could be said to be easier to choose to make work, say, digitally now mm. because you escape the, the history yeah. which was pre... What, something. But I suppose what it's what, pre, what, pre, but... What, what, what this uh, raises is the, is the really important issue of no matter what you choose to do as art you still have that fundamental question to ask, but what makes that art? Even if what you've chosen to do as art is painting or carving or one of the other original arts. It's interesting you saying that because you have the original arts and then in the late 19th century and the early 20th century you have photography claiming itself as an art and then film as the seventh art, which is, you know... And it, interesting phenomenon historically I mean, you look at pictorialism in um, 19th and early 20th century photography for example and this kind of you know um, this this love of the sort of grand epic his history painting style photograph oh. um, and the um, use of classical plays within uh, films in sort of around 1910 as sort of an attempt to engage within the high arts mm. and the writers that were writing in the early first two decades of the 20th century about film who were trying to justify this new medium as an art, like it's quite, it's Arnheim quite, and people like that. It's quite were, sad and funny in a way, isn't it, that, yeah. that when, the, when, the, when art replaces the concept of the arts, that at that point there are, there are all these uh, rivals who are claiming to be an art, when art is no longer an art. Art is more generic than that. And so, that, and, 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 you know, I was reading something only last week where, where this other new practice mm. was, was arguing that it is an art too. And it's like, in the 21st century, it wants to be an art, which is, 
which was already, in terms of art, uh, abandoned at the end of the 18th century. Yeah, there's a, and there's a sort as of... A, as a notion, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's yeah. this technological kind of narrative, isn't there, that sort of fits in where when a medium, a new medium is created... It, Do you mean media? It, sorry? Media? A new medium. Medium. Or, like, you know, Form. film. Form. Uh, um, yeah. You know, Andre Bazin would argue that with the invention of um, photography and film, that took away the idea of portraiture from um, painting because it, it could do it so much better. But that made one of the great tasks of photography and um, film to document the real in the same way as realism in the 19th century within painting tried to do. So although it seems incredibly anachronistic, at the same time the argument from a point of view of medium specificity, this kind of quality within film of capturing the indexical, capturing the real, is what's very um, the very premise of, of its sort of anachronistic look. But the, but the idea that photography and film can do portraiture better than painting is, a, is, a pure, is, is thinking about technique in a, in a purely instrumental way, which is to say that you can make something lifelike more easily and perhaps in more detail and so on and so forth. But if we, if we start to think of technique instead of skill, then there might be a different kind of better, you know, like... Well, there's, there's no skill in that sense within film and photography. It, 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 the machine captures it well, for that's you. Well, that's not true at the beginning. Uh, it, it, it might be more true now with automatic cameras, but at the time that we're talking about, it, it was a skill to, to produce a photograph. They were, they were, the, the, the contraptions that they used had to be... Um, I'd argue it still is. It still but even, is. But still even, is. So, even so, to say that photographs are better at mm -hmm. portraits than paintings is to, is to have a very instrumental idea of skill as opposed to the technique the, the issues of technique that are, that are clearly present in in the works of but it's not just Picasso about skill because it's the, it's the intention so of, of of what the portrait painter or maker wants to get i mean you know to portray you the way i might wish to paint might be the best medium to use and another one it might be photography for my my what i want to say about that's, the, that, that's exactly the meaningfulness of technique. Yeah, so exactly. Opposed, that's why it's not. It's, it's not about. It's about what I want to say. Well, to move on to Chris Marker. Yeah, which <laughs> is what I was going to do because yeah. you are talking about um, but, film. But, but there which is, is a great. There is a connection here, which, yeah, is, bring which is the idea of the author of the film, um, which is an important aspect that makes a film an artwork because it's authored in some way. There is an auteur who creates that work. It's not a sort of mechanical splurge. It's not just CCTV. It's, mm. you no, know, there's the some, You're saying there's some person the behind of, it. Yeah. Someone behind yeah. the thing. And, and it's a singular person, you, you know. In, in reality, it's not. It's, it's a whole team of people, but the great narrative of yes. the auteur is, is this kind of... Um, visionary. Just tell me, tell me what an auteur is. I mean, you are doing it. Well, it is, it's literally the the author of the of the film. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but historically, there's been um, ways of trying to read, um, for example, auteur theory in 1960s um, French film theory. Uh, 
and and earlier and 1950s and 1960s French film theory looked at um, tried to sort of validate mainstream Hollywood films and B movies as a kind of art form by unearthing these great um, unknown directors um, or or directors that had been sort of maligned as being just quite common figures but um, you know that they praised these authors and out of that kind of idea came Chris Marker he was you know one of one of these figures that came out of it and there is sort of a cult behind Chris Marker as being you know this um, great master of the filmic medium um, and the other um, post film media of digital technologies that he engaged with we're talking about him because you did a review of, of his current show, A Grin Without a Cat, at Whitechapel, which goes on until June 22nd, didn't you, um, Colin? Uh, for instance, th th talking about this author, auteur thing, he used the gaze or, or staring back series is a, something he did, didn't he? Some work he made. Mm. I mean, that, does that does that affect this idea? I mean, you, you tell me, tell us what that's what that is. But that, I was just wondering if that that series of work or that his dealing with individuals and their relationship to the camera was questioning this auteur thing in any way. Um, I might, might maybe an irrelevant question. Let's try and unpick this. Yeah, sorry. So, the idea of filming people without them looking back in the camera was a rule of classical cinema that began after around um, you know 1914 something like that you know kind of that, that the birth of Hollywood that it, it became something that you should never do is look directly into the camera because that broke the uh, fictive space of the narrative that you were trying to create early cinema was full of um, people sort of winking knowingly yeah, yeah. at the camera and, you know, making little jokes direct to camera. Um, but that wasn't fictional, was it? That, they, they were trying to capture themselves live and well, they were very, living. Yeah, they were very blended, those early... Um, early cinema was quite blended between the fictive and documentary and actuality kind of modes, um, whereas classical Hollywood cinema really regimented the the shot, counter shot, the not looking directly into camera, etc. So what Chris Marker did was he he went out filming people in crowds um, in lots of different places in the first um, Olympics after the Second World War in 52, I think it was, in Helsinki, um, right up to, uh, you know, in Guinea-Bissau and in uh, Tokyo. And he was filming people and he liked... The moment when they turned and looked into the camera, and well, there was the realization sort of, of being filmed, the realization maybe. of being filmed, and this kind of connection. So, his, since the 1970s, there's been a sort of critical debate about that as being a intelligent, self-reflexive kind of idea with, that Chris Marker was one of the people that helped bring about. Um, a, te and, a, te a technique, and it is a technique. It's a technique that's used in a lot of um, artists' moving image. Um, and it's a sort of shortcut to self-reflexivity in some way. Um, but it's, it's also not quite that simple because he's... Chris Marker 
likes to film women, <laughs> basically. And he's, there's a flirtatiousness to the look that he get, garners. And he likes this kind of the female figure looking back. And he's, he's got this very interesting relationship to um, f- filming women. You know, sometimes it's quite an eroticised gaze, but sometimes it's equally um, Madonna figures or something like that. So there is a... There's, there's this kind of uncritical element within how he engages with that that I think is problematic. Mean, and uncritical tr- of himself, do you mean? Yeah, and the ethnographic gaze that he utilises. Um, so I bring that out in this review. When I was writing the review, I was thinking that there, you know, Chris Marker is such a sort of important figure for many different reasons, and there's so many ways I could approach talking about this exhibition at the Whitechapel and one of them is you know how you display moving image artworks in a gallery Um, another might be his huge influence on artists filmmakers and video makers today um, the moving image you mean like like, for instance the way he might structure a film yeah it's called essay filmmaking generally um, of using a um, voiceover or a voice off um, and he does it in a very particular way where he often has um, somebody reading a letter and it's a, almost like a fictional character reading a letter, but it's clearly just a thin-layered proxy for Chris Marker's own voice, but it's, it's sort of... He's bracketing it through other means. Um, so there's that huge influence on... on um, experimental filmmaking and video making today um, is that a distancing device it's a, yeah it's a, yeah an, an authorial distancing device in that way well it's it's talked about as being an authorial um, distancing device but I I don't really see it working that way because it's clearly still Chris Marker speaking. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the thing it's is, not... that as we move on into the further, further 21st century, we realise more and more how things are constructed. So we're so aware of this that to be... To, that he becomes mm. out of date in that sense, mm. do you think? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting one. You yeah, know, yeah. W- 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 if you look at all the other possibilities that he could have done in the other ways he could construct his films, he could let other voices in, but he tends not to. He tends to override those in some way. Jean Rouche was very critical of uh, Chris Marcus from Le Jolie May, which is um, the uh, the May of 1962 rather than 68, and he's on the streets of Paris um, filming reactions to um, sort of the... The, the post-colonial condition, perhaps you might say, uh, that that France was experiencing at that time with the uh, war in Algiers, etc. So, um, yeah, there is. What there was is he critical of? You, what did you mean? You said he was critical of it. What was? He was critical of the fact that he, Jean Rouche, was critical of the fact that Marco wasn't um, allowing the voices of the people he was interviewing to have sufficient play within those films. Jean Rouche is, is sort of known as an ethnographic filmmaker who worked collaborati- co- collaboratively <laughs> with um, his subjects or whatever you might call or his collaborators and they would, you know, film their own scenes and interact or 
there, you know, there might be um, in uh, Chronicle of a Summer, for example, there's a, a scene at the end where they're watching a Chronicle of a Summer in the cinema talking about how they think the film has been constructed. You know, so there's this um, very open, collaborative very open. kind of reflexivity within that. Yeah, and, and letting the, the yeah. author be, be spread out. So although Chris Marker, I think, is a wonderful and incredibly interesting filmmaker, there are problems that... Um, that are there that people often don't speak about because there is a sort of um, a huge love of Chris Marker. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you say that that was a problem? I mean, I can see that there are two different techniques and therefore two different uh, philosophies around uh, filmmaking and, and its relation to those who are filmed, mm -hmm. and one with the inclusion of their voice and their participation, the other one without. But why would it be a problem to not include their voices? Why, why, why did you describe that as a problem? Um, because it's not as democratic <laughs> as, but as why, perhaps but it why, might. But why would filmmaking need to be democratic? You, you mean art? Do you mean art? I mean, like, your, your review didn't ask lots of visitors at the museum what they thought about it. You haven't written this in a democratic <laughs> way. So you're clearly yeah. not that committed to democracy. <laughs> so why would, you, why would you want Chris Marker to be democratic? Um, there is an issue when you film people mm -hmm. of um, their own voices. You mean of encroaching... But, your, because you're, you, the idea is that you're encroaching on their personal space... Without asking, say, well, or... Well, well let's is bring... But there isn't one right way to deal with that issue. There's an issue. Yeah. But one way of dealing with that issue is, is, to, is to behave in a more kind of... Um, in, in, you know, in, in a way where you're constructing... Uh, you yourself, as the artist, is constructing a situation mm -hmm. in which the viewer, who mm -hmm. is also included here... Uh, has a relationship to the people being filmed. Now, if you if you if you just have this kind of democratic relationship between the filmmaker and the people filmed, then where's the viewer? And it seems to me that what Chris Mark is doing is he's, he's trying he's making a film with the viewer in mind rather than with the people being filmed in mind. And so he's got a, he's setting up a different ethical political relationship. He's not primarily concerned with the people being yeah, filmed. Yeah, I don't really buy that. I mean, this is the whole kind of ethnographic film issue. You could say, well, yeah, um, films like War Canoe from 1913 was sort of very much intended for the viewer, but, you know, the, the fact that it portrayed the savages as cannibals... <laughs> whatever you say, it's you not, can't ignore. Not, you no, can't no. ignore that. Think, you can't I, I ignore that, that, that pro-filmic relationship. But what, what you're what you're suggesting there is that the only relationship you can have to the viewer is one of confirming their prejudices. But I don't think that that's what Chris Marker's relationship to the viewer is. The, it, it operates in different ways. I mean, I, th I think one of the great films that he's done is um, a film called Le Fond de l'Air et Rouge. Excuse my. French, um, which is um, put into English as it's not a direct translation, it's a sort of attempt to um, come up with another um, idiomatic parallel with it. And it's in English, it's a grin without a cat. And it's a history of really the late 60s and the failure of revolution. And he uses an archival film in that. and. Uh, I.e. filmed by other people, not him. 
Is that a lot of his is his own film, and a lot of it isn't. Um, okay. But yeah, he he kind of is is re- he's a great remixer. He remixes his own material and other people's material quite a lot, and it's an incredibly innovative and powerful film. It's something like four hours long, so it's quite hard work. But um, you know, he sets up all these kind of contrasts between the actions and the rhetoric of certain kind of establishment left wing groups like. Um, the unions, for example, and their relationship to factory workers on strike. And um, he talks about the Prague Spring. Um, and there's Castro uh, giving a speech, a long-winded speech, where he ultimately kind of crumbles and says it was right for the Soviet Union to invade Prague. So... But why, why did you think this was a, was a great... Sorry, you said it was a really good piece of work. Well, it doesn't override the subjective voices of the individuals that are being filmed. So, so it's his treatment. You in, like his in treatment that way. in that way. Um, that's, that's how I would see the, the difference. Um, so some, you're saying some of his work doesn't do this thing which yeah. really I mean, find problematic, These, these things are quite specific, you know, t- to film people walking down the street and then adding a voiceover, as John Smith does yeah. in A Girl Chewing Gum, which is this wonderful film in which he... he pretends that he's directing reality you know he, he's just filmed a street and then he speaks over the top um sort of directing action he says you know i want those two pigeons in the middle there to fly off now and the two pigeons take off and you know it gets more and more ridiculous as he says i want the whole world to sink into the ground and then the camera pans up as if the, <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's it's a great sort of parody of that um authoral kind of yeah. presence. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can do these how things is that, in Can ways. you say how that's different to Marco? Also, we need to, also, at that stage, you also need to introduce into, into, the, into the discussion is the m- mainstream uses of voiceover. Um, because Chris Marker doesn't use the, the, you know, the, the kind of BBC documentary version of voiceover. Yeah, that's what he's trying to break away from. Exactly. He's trying to break away from the voice of God. Yeah. style of um, yeah. uh, documentary making. But you've got to ask, how successful is he? And um, or, or is it possible to be? Well, well it's interesting. You know, it, it is interesting because that style came around... It came about because you couldn't have sync audio in early documentary. So um, John Grierson and the documentary filmmakers of the 1930s Recorded the voiceovers afterwards, so they couldn't be seen speaking to camera. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was you know field recordings were layered on top of um, the the footage that they had, etc. So that's why it's or that is the history, perhaps. Maybe but it's not, not just why, a technical thing, is it? History. Because it's also to do with um, decisions made about the tone of that voice, mm-hmm. the the body, the actual body of this disembodied voice. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so there are other issues no, which you... are not just to do with the the, the state of, uh, of of the technology of cameras and... Or, or the fact of having a voiceover, you know, his, as you say, his voiceovers are, um, Tell you are fractured truth. and... Or they, they don't, you know, they don't, they specifically don't tell you the truth. Yeah, they, exactly. they fracture... Um, that kind of idea of truth, or is um, so. They, so in that sense, they they at least intended to activate the viewer as a thinking person. Yes, and that that is what is the, the crucial relationship here. Yeah. I think rather yeah, yeah. than thinking about what's the other 
beyond the screen, just thinking about what's in front of the screen. Yeah. No, and, and they do do that, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's possible for, the, for both to happen together. I mean, to, you know, to the, the, the richness of the film is the confusion that, that, that you get yeah, where, well, you, where you feel yeah. one thing which annoys you, like Colin has maybe <laughs> felt felt with the, with the gays and his treatment of women, and then you also are are warming, however, to the narrative way which it's presented to you mm. by by this voice. So, which which is, I mean, that's what kind of thing makes it art for me. Is that is that richness and and as you say, an acknowledgement of of all kinds of things. Yeah, I find I find the film Sans Soleil to be a, a difficult film to watch because of that kind of relationship to the other, or how you might, you know. I, I do find that a problematic film, whereas you know a, a lot of his his other films aren't so difficult in that way or, or so much of a challenge. But he does come, you know. There, what this exhibition does is it traces how he was working on. Um, a series of basically tourist guides to different countries around the world and his relationship to that. Um, like, you know, an early film by him is called Sunday in Peking and he, he films um, the various different things that he's been allowed to see in Peking um, shortly after Mao's uh, revolution. And he adds a, a narrative voiceover to that, which is very sardonic and dry it's very wit i mean he writes beautifully but he writes a bit like oscar wilde he writes in this sort of almost kind of um aristocratic kind of you know he's very distant from the things that he's filmed or the things that are there you know and, and they're almost a, a joke to him in sunday in peking so yeah listen we're just about out of time so i think we'll end there because I think you've really in, hopefully infused the listener to go and see the show at Whitechapel, which is still possible. As I say, when it goes on until the 22nd of June. And, and, and Dave's article feature on education has certainly made me think um, a lot, as normal with Dave's features. They do that. <laughs> so thank you both very much, Colin and Dave, for coming on the programme. Um, as I say at the beginning of the programme, as I said at the beginning of the programme, we were um, discussing texts from the June 2014 issue number 377 of Art Monthly. Well, you can subscribe to that these days for a mere £29 for 10 issues in one year, which is a bargain. And if you wish to do it, you have a website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. Please go there and you can go to the subscribe button. Thanks a lot for listening. Do listen again in the future. We do a programme every month. Goodbye.